Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join our hosts, Phil Dark and Kelly Stewart. Welcome to the Think Orphan podcast, where we seek to help you navigate the orphan crisis with experts from around the world. We are excited to share that this past week, we uh, surpassed 10,000 downloads in over 60 countries around the world. And so we just want to say thank you for uh, tuning in and listening. And And we would love if you are one of the 10,000 to, to go and rate um, our show on iTunes and just uh Make a review. Let us know what you think. Let us know um, what you're learning or, or just any questions that you may have. And so with that, we have a great new show today. So, Phil, why don't you share a little bit about what we have going on today? Yeah, it's uh, super exciting to me, too, to, to just hear how this show has been impacting people in so many different countries. Um, and so many, so many people. I mean, it's just blowing me away to hear these numbers. Um, and today we have another great show, as you said, and it, it's, it's Diana Prokoko from, uh, she's from Ukraine originally. She has been adopted in, by a family in North Carolina and that's where she currently resides today. Um, it's a great interview. You're gonna, you're gonna hear from her and, uh, her story and just about a movie that they're making about her life. And so you're definitely going to want to listen to that and, uh, and learn from her. Uh, we also have uh, thoughts from the field from Brandon Stiver, who is in uh, Tanzania. So he's got some great wisdom to share with us. We got a uh, book recommendation also that I'll be given later in the show. Um, but first, before we get to all that, we have another mailbag question, and this is this this question is actually representative of uh, several questions that uh, Kelly and I have received from folks out there um, about year in giving, really about not just year in giving, but giving in general to organizations and and really what to look for. And so the question is that you know that we're going to tackle today is you know when doing due diligence on on giving to a particular organization, uh, what factors should you look at when determining whether to give to a particular organization? So Kelly, what do you think about that? Well, I think that's a great question to ask and not just to uh, randomly give money um, or to give a donation to an organization that you do not fully understand the work that they are doing. I think um, as many of our guests have highlighted um, on the show, and obviously that's many organizations that are reputable and that are doing good work that you can easily donate to. But also, um, I'm a big fan of just supporting um, agencies or organizations that are actually empowering people um, that are actually um, helping not just to, um, provide maybe a, a monetary gift or anything like that, but also that are giving skills to families to keep them together, um, that are giving, um, those life changing, um, just resources that, that families need to, to stay together and that are, uh, really developing communities that are really empowering communities to, to take care of, of children. And so, um, I think that is, is, is huge when you're looking at organizations, um, but also just really doing your due diligence. I mean, I think that just the fact that that was in the question and taking your time and researching um, what what an organization, um, just their stats, uh, just the the places they're working um, and any kind of uh, local information, any kind of resourcing that you can get uh, from people who are actually on the ground, I think is is very beneficial. What about you, Phil? Yeah, I would say with with giving to organizations, the first thing is, you know, 
find out what you're passionate about and seek out organizations that, that are consistent with that. So if it's, if it's in orphan care, as we're talking about, you know, find some organizations that are doing things that are consistent with your passion. Um, and, and that's kind of the first thing that I talk to people about, because that will be something that you will want to get more and more engaged in. Um, and then really, you know, somebody had a great, uh, answer. This is kind of a side note, but they, they once asked me, you know, how much should we give to an organization? And a friend of mine said, really the greatest response she had was, give whatever it takes to get you to really pray for and care about that organization and what they're doing and to get involved and get engaged. And so I think with that, on how on the front end, how do we actually, when you find those organizations that are consistent with that or appear to be, I think it really is getting in and asking some hard questions, you know, doing as much research as you can do online. Um, I would say as you're getting involved, to get involved deeply, you're going to want to visit that organization. If it's local, that would be a lot easier. If it's somewhere around the world, whether, it, you know, to, to visit them. And because that's really the only way that you're going to be able to fully get understanding of what they're doing, how they are, how, quali- how quality of an organization they are. If you're not able to actually visit, then it's really talking with people who have visited and people that you trust that know firsthand what the organization is doing, how they're doing it, um, and how they're, how they're spending the money that you will be giving. Um, but I'm, I'm also an advocate though. Obviously I run an organization, so I'm a bit biased on this, but even before I ran an organization, I, I fully believe that when you're giving to an organization, to give to the organization and trust that they will do what's best with that money rather than earmarking money all over the place because that tends to tie down the organization in its use of that money. And so as you're doing the due diligence, I would say if you fully trust the organization and you're going to give any money to it, I'd hope that you would trust that organization with the money that you do give. And so, you know, it's kind of a, I've I've gone a little bit beyond the, 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 what factors to look for, but I think at the end of the day, organizations um, will spend money differently. So as there's no, I don't believe personally there is a percentage that is like the magic percentage as far as program versus administrative because those numbers are so easily manipulated. Um, and so if you look on like a charity navigator, it'll have that number of this, um, this percentage went to administrative. But when you think about it, you know, so many of these organizations, salaries really are program in a lot of ways. And a lot of the traditionally overhead costs that are typically deemed overhead um, are actually needed for the work that that organization is doing to serve the people it's serving. And so those, those numbers uh, where a lot of people go to those as the kind of end all be all as far as what an org- whether an organization is doing great work um, are, are very, um, they're not the most uh, uh, easily, um, determinative of the work that the organization is doing. And so, well, that being said, there are organizations out there, I'm not going to name any names, but some very large organizations that have really 6% of their funds are going, you know, raised, are actually going to the work they say they do. That's a, that's a percentage that I would say would be a red flag for me. But if it's, you know, something, you know, 70, 80, 90, somewhere in there, I would say those are all numbers that, that you need to go a little bit deeper into that organization. So there's a whole lot you can look to, but I think at the end of the day, find people you trust that can give you recommendations. As Kelly said, we have several recommendations on our, on our page. Um, and if you have any questions to email the people that you know, that are actually doing the work around the world or give them a phone call. And if you don't know anybody like that, check out our webpage, check out other organizations 
organizations that you respect and see who they refer you to um, would be my recommendations on that. I totally agree. I think those are great points. And and I would just add, I mean, I think um, just as we've talked so much about on our podcast of just making sure you're helping is helping and you're helping is not hurting. And that includes uh, where you give your money. So with that, let's get to the interview and we hope you enjoy it. Yeah, well, Deanna is, uh, as I said earlier, she's just a, a, a woman with a story that uh, will inspire and encourage you. I have no doubt about that. And so I'm just going to leave the rest to her um, and our conversation that we had recently. Hey, Deanna, it's great to have you here on the show today. Hi, thank you. It's great to be here. So, Deanna, I know that uh, some folks who were at the CAFO Summit last year got to know you a little bit um, there as you were uh, interviewed there by uh, Dennis Rainey on the Family Life uh, podcast that they do there from the summit. Um, but I know a lot of most of the people listening in today probably don't know don't know who you are, don't know your story. So I was hoping you could just share that with everyone out there. Um, just a the, kind of a short version of what I know is a much much longer story, uh, so people can get to know you a little bit. Uh, yes, of course I would love to share my story, and I'll try to keep it short. Um, the condensed version. I my name is Diana, and I grew up in Kiev, Ukraine to a mother who was an alcoholic and she was abusive and had a very, very um, short temper. My birth mother was a drug user as well as a prostitute. So from the beginning, um, when I was born, my life was pretty much unstable due to the hostile environment that I lived in with her. Um, my birth mom just um, did not make very good choices, and unfortunately, it reflected on me. From a young age, my birth mother did not um, provide a very stable place for us to live. Um, so we lived from place to place, usually apartments, um, friends of hers, and people who would generally let us temporarily stay with them. And so um, my mother's abuse towards me was very physical, emotional, and um, mental. And um, she said all kinds of hurtful things that you shouldn't say to a child. And um, unfortunately, those were things I had to deal with as an adult. Um, My birth mother became very physically abusive, even more so at the age of um, five. I remember specifically her um, abuse started to escalate towards me. And um, by the time I was nine years old, I could not handle her abuse. And I decided to run away from her. And I went to live on the streets by myself because I thought I had a better shot at living by myself and fending for myself versus staying with her and Hmm. her abuse. And um, actually what happened um, was I ended up living on the streets during the winter months. And uh, as many of you know, um, winter in Ukraine is very brutal. And I was a nine-year-old child fending for myself. And um, I eventually got into a group of um, like a gang with other kids who were also street children, also looking for food, begging, stealing, and 
um, that became just the norm for me, and that's what I did to survive. Mm. I begged for money. And so um, one particular night um, when I was begging for money, it was raining, and I was standing under a bridge, and there was, a um, like, a lady, and she stood, and she stared at me, and she saw that I was desperate and needed help, and she offered me uh, a place to stay. She offered me a place I can go where I would be safe and someone would take care of me. And um, this place ended up being Father's house. And I remember specifically being so desperate and going to this place that she told me about. And when I arrived and showed up, sure enough, there was um, an apartment with two bedrooms and several other street children who apparently had been invited. And we were all seeking help. We we're all seeking um, comfort, food, shelter. And there was volunteers and Roman Kovnikov, who is the man who started all this. And he opened up this home for children and we we're all able to get what we needed that day. And so that is, how my life turned around from being abused, living on the streets, and then going to live at a father's house where it became a Christian orphanage and we were taken care of by loving volunteers. Mm. Yeah, and, and we'll get into kind of what happened from the father's house in a few minutes, but um, I just want to touch on a couple things and have you expand a little bit. Um, the fact that you left home at the age of nine, it, it could, it could get lost in there a little bit. Um, but to think about that, to think, as you said, not only the cold of the streets, but just the harshness of what happens on the streets of big cities. And, um, how did you ensure, and you t- you said briefly that you, kind of got involved in a gang, but what did that really look like and what did that really mean and how did you ensure um, that you weren't just another statistic, uh, a nine-year-old statistic, when you found yourself living on the streets? Life on the streets was very cruel. It was very dangerous and dangerous not just because of the strangers and, um, you know, of the cold, but dangerous because even the adults surrounding these street children and myself included, you didn't know as a child who you could trust. If a policeman walked by, you weren't guaranteed that that policeman was going to take care of you, help you, find you help. So I grew up being very afraid of policemen and other adults, so I was not a trusting child. Hmm. And, um, and so my survival mode became, um, just being very, um, suspicious of other people and always, um, looking out for myself and watching my back. I was very determined to stay alive from the very beginning. So, um, that's just how I coped. And, I didn't um, think of myself as a statistic back then, of course, but I knew that I was there to look out for myself and no one else was going to take care of me but me. Mm. And so um, I ran. I ran very hard. I ran from danger. I ran from policemen. 
I um, always had a sense of intuition, which right now I say that, but it was before I knew my God and before I knew the Lord. And um, I believe that um, God had given me um, discernment. When I was in dangerous situations, for example, on the streets, when um, some of my friends and girls who were um, doing other kinds of things to get money, um, my discernment at the age of nine was more than what it should have been because um, I was in dangerous situations where I was almost sold to, um, uh, to a strange man. And um, I had a very um, strong feeling in my stomach that it was a very bad situation for me to be in, even though I wasn't exactly aware of what was going to be the next step. But I knew that when I was um, in close encounters and I was stuck in an elevator with this strange man, I knew that as soon as those doors opened on the elevator, that I was going to run as hard as I could. And that's what I did. Hmm. And I, I became a runner. And unfortunately, um, that's how I dealt with all my problems. And it carried into my adulthood until um, I learned to deal with problems another way. Yeah, and, and with that, you know, you talked about the Father's House, and you talked about, uh, you know, just people that you ultimately did trust. How how did that, um, and you talk about the discernment that you believe, you know, God gave to you, and I, I believe that as well, but what was it about other people that you did ultimately trust that was different from those folks that you felt that you couldn't trust? Um, well, like I said, um, the very first person I trusted was on the streets. She approached me because she saw my desperation and um so i trusted her um i trusted her kindness and the genuineness in her eyes and um once again the discernment Mm. i was following my gut and once i had arrived at father's house i saw once again the consistency and character of that lady and the rest of the staff that were surrounding us kids So I saw that these people were genuine and they were not there to hurt us or take advantage of us. And so um, I started like on this little journey of learning to trust people again and trust adults most of all. And so um, I trusted Roman, which is the man who opened Father's House, the director and president of Father's House. I trusted him and he was my first father figure in a way. And um, I trusted him because he was um, consistent. He was consistent in what he said, in what he did, and that meant a lot. Yeah. And and you to go back a little bit too with with your your mom and uh, you know she was abusive. You have said in in previous interviews that you really didn't feel that your mother uh, knew how to love you, and you've also talked about the connection with fatherlessness in, in, in her life and, or as far as not really having a great relationship with her father and, um, how you didn't have a relationship with your father. Can you speak to that a little bit and the effect of that fatherlessness on your life, um, both from your mother and her relationship with you and also just not having that father figure in your life early on? Yes, of course, early on, I did not know about my birth father. I, was never even taught about him or his name, who he was. 
And um, my birth mother at that at that time, she was very um, she did not want to identify with the fact that um, I was black. And at that time in Ukraine, there were not very many black people. So um, I was uh, definitely a mark on her and she did not know how to deal with that and the judgment of other people and especially her family. So my grandfather, which is her father, he did not accept me Mm. or the fact that she was going to raise me. So in a way, he disowned her. And even before that matter happened, she never had a healthy relationship with her father. And I believe with all my heart that um, children, and especially little girls, in order to know their full identity, do have to have a healthy and wholesome relationship with their father. And unfortunately, my mother did not have that relationship, and she did not give me the opportunity to find out about my birth father and never told me anything good about him. So I just grew up with this void and eventually decided to cope with it. And I started to believe that I didn't need a father or a male figure or role model in my life. She was all I had and that was all I needed. Unfortunately, that was not true. And so when I grew up and started to um, look for my identity, being fatherless in a way, really was a struggle because I did not identify with the father figure whatsoever. Hmm. Yeah. And that, and that can manifest itself in so many different ways. And, and, uh, you know, you talked about different people that have come into your life and, and how they've impacted you and able and enabled you to think differently, enabled you to love well. Um, and, and in one of those ways is, is the idea of forgiveness. And, um, you know, as you survived a brutal childhood, there were several people in your life who wronged you in, in, in really big ways. Um, how have you been able to forgive them and, and what or who in particular has most helped you in your ability to forgive? Um, well, first of all, I do have to say I lived at father's house. And while all of us lived at father's house, Roman made it a point that every Sunday and every time the church doors were open that we would be there. And my life dramatically changed when I received Christ into my heart because Without that, I would not be able to sit here today and say, I live in complete and whole forgiveness. So the day that I accepted the Lord as my Savior because of Roman and the church that we attended at that time, I'm able to say now that Christ forgave me for my sins. And so from that point on, I was taught about forgiveness. And little by little, I started to understand just how important it is for me to forgive my birth mother for the things that she has done, for the abuse, for the attempts to kill me and drown me and hang me, for the times she has stabbed me. I had to walk in some deep and serious um, forgiveness for many years. And... um, One person in the beginning that had a lot to do with that was Roman because he's the one that taught me about forgiveness and what salvation really meant. And so forgiveness was more of freeing myself 
Mm. And um, whether my birth mother accepted that I forgave her, that I still loved her or not, the forgiveness that I gave, I was releasing her. And I did not, um, I did not hold her against anything she's ever done from that point on. And so that has been very freeing to me. And I just want to speak right now into every life that um, has been hurt by a family member. I just want to say that I hope you can forgive whoever has wronged you because forgiveness will release miracles into your life. Hmm. And with that, you, you've also had a lot of miracles in your life. Um, just surviving is one of them. But also there's been some, uh, you know, kind of, as you if you said in past interviews that I've heard uh, you give, it's, it's you've had several cases of kind of everyday normal people doing seemingly ordinary things um, with faith in God that, that have greatly changed your life and transformed you That's right. into who you are today. Can you share a couple of those stories and, and how their intervention in your life has uh, inspired and encouraged you to do what you're doing today? Oh, yes, of course. That is so exciting. That is just the goodness of the Lord because I am humbled and um, in order to just receive so many blessings and it's ordinary people. And one of those ordinary people that turned around my life is once again, you heard me say Roman. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... Um, after some time of living at father's house, there was a man that came on a missions trip to Ukraine and he toured the orphanage and he was able to see father's house and all the kids that lived there. And the Lord led him to me. His name was Bob and Bob Layman came on a missions trip from Springfield, Missouri. And um, the Lord opened his eyes and he was um, moved by all these children and in particularly me and he took a picture of me and he by the end of his trip took my picture to his family and showed it to his church back in Springfield, Missouri and he just felt moved and wanted to raise and raise funds and help in any way that he could and um, eventually when he raised some funds he went to his um, local plastic surgeon in their town and he showed them my picture and he said is there anything you're able to do for this child and that hospital in Springfield Missouri uh, at that time was St. John's Hospital and Dr. LaFerrier is my plastic surgeon and he saw my picture and I was around nine and a half ten years old back then and he was moved and he said Find this child, bring her here, and there you go. There's two ordinary people right Mm. then and there who were just remarkable, who were just um, for such a time as this. I was able to have an opportunity to fly for my first time to America, and I was in the hospital receiving 18 plastic surgeries. Mm. The doctors were so generous and so kind and the nurses the anesthesiologists they all donated their services to um to help me Hmm. and i just am blown away by their generosity and um just 
how God uses ordinary people just minding their own business and um, whenever God calls and knocks on your heart and there's one thing you can do, you just never know what that one thing might do for somebody. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing to, to hear that. And and one, one thing that I think we, we left out of the story is why you needed that plastic surgery. What what happened um, to, to give you the, the scars that you had at the time in the picture? Well, like I mentioned in the beginning, my birth mother was very physically abusive. And with that said, that means she um, was very angry one particular night and what she did was um in her anger and drunkenness she um turned on the gas stove and um she was trying to attempt to boil some water and she got frustrated because i guess we didn't have anything to cook with and so she threw the pot of boiling water on me Mm. and she was upset with me and so she grabbed me and pulled me over and Um, At that time, um, she just put her whole weight and pushed my head towards the gas stove. The burner was still on, Mm. and and she held my head and my face to the burner, and I tried to push her off of me, but unfortunately, her weight was not what I could bear, Mm. and I ended up eventually running away and scrambling away from her, and um, this was a third-degree burn on my head. And um, my eyebrows were both burnt, my eyelashes and some other parts of my face. And that was the severity and the extent of her abuse. Mm. Um, there were other, um, other times and other nights of torture where she would drown me, where she would hang me and stab me. And none of these wounds and none of these things has she ever sought medical treatment for me because mm. she knew that if she were to seek help, that... Even in Ukraine at that time, people would um, notice and people would say something and she would probably go to jail. And she did not want that. And Mm -hmm. she threatened me all the days of my life that if I were to ever turn her in or to go seek help from the police, that either she would kill me or I would become um, an orphan. I would become somebody that didn't have anybody in this world and that I would be um, under the Ukraine, um, government and, Mm. um, living in the conditions of, um, the government children. And I did not want that. And she scared me. And so I had never told anybody of what she did. Wow. Yeah. And that's all as you, before the age of nine, all of that happened. And to, to hear, kind of both sides of it too, how God, what God's done to know now at this end is, is obviously able, we're able to, tank, to kind of take a look back and go, wow, God's done some awesome things, but I just can't even imagine, um, what was going through your mind during that time. Um, and, and ultimately with that, you know, childhood, you, you let, you ran away, then you go out and live on the streets for a while, get in the father's house. And then you were adopted ultimately by a loving family that has impacted your life greatly over the years. But at the beginning, not surprisingly, given your, your past, your attitude about the adoptive family wasn't always super positive and you had some trouble assimilating to that adoptive family, right? Of course, that is definitely right. Um, so I'll just, um, go back and catch you up a little bit. So I was in Springfield, Missouri receiving the surgeries. And once my surgeries were through, um, 
I um, ended up going back to live in Ukraine. And I was living back at father's house. Um, however, um, I did want to have a family. So I started praying very hard that I would um, have an opportunity to come back to America and live in the States and have the dream of what every orphan dreams about, which is to be loved unconditionally. And it felt like a long time before that prayer was answered, but praise God, it was answered. And so what happened was my mom, Tara, um, she and her oldest son went on a missions trip to Ukraine. And of course, they visited and toured Father's house, the orphanage that I was living at once again. And her and I uh, fell in love. And long story short, I ended up sharing my story with her and she was moved as well. And at the end of her missions trip, she came back to North Carolina and um, she felt the Lord lead her. And she spoke with her family, with her husband, and um, they asked me if I wanted to be adopted. And of course, that was an answer to my prayer. And um, before you know it, I was back in North Carolina. My dreams were answered and um, I prayed so long for this. So it was a dream come true. However, once the honeymoon phase was over <laughs> and um, I realized real quickly that despite the fact that my family loved me and that I loved them, I didn't realize how much work relationships really are. Mm. And I was never taught that. I was never, um, you know, in a consistent uh, environment where you got up every day, you had other brothers and sisters, you went to school, you had your routine, you had your um, discipline, and you um, you honored your parents, and you had chores you were responsible for. Um, none of those things are bad or wrong, but I was not used to those things, and. The biggest thing that was my struggle in the family was the fact that um, I did not know how to love or how to receive love in a healthy way. And so through this time of having my answered prayer and living in my dream home and having a family and a mom and a dad and three brothers who loved me, something just was still missing. And it was the fact that I needed to learn to receive love and mm -hmm. to give love. And so we did have some ups and downs in the family. I pushed my family away for a very long time because I wanted to see, would they stick with me or would they send me back? And um, in my own twisted um, way of thinking, I thought that, you know, eventually they would get tired of me. They wouldn't love me because my birth mom wouldn't love me. How could they? Mm. And so unfortunately, that's how I thought for a very long time. And my um, adoptive mother and father, they both looked at me and they said, you are our family and we are your family. You're not going anywhere and we aren't either. So quit pushing us away. <laughs> and I remember just looking at them with tears in my eyes thinking, how could you say that? You, you can't love somebody that much. Mm. And, um, and something broke in me that day and I just realized these people, you cannot push them away. What is wrong with them? Yeah. And so, um, and they love me and unconditionally, no matter what. And they were not going to send me back. And they didn't. And, um, 
and I know why now because I'm a parent right now myself and um, I as an adult understand what it is to love a child unconditionally and I cannot imagine a parent hurting their child you just have to be mentally unstable mm-hmm so how would you encourage uh, adoptive families listening in out there who are struggling to assimilate um, to each other and, and, and bond uh, to each other? How would you encourage them through that? Oh, you know, there is a lot of resources now that we have that unfortunately um, 10, 15 years ago were not as accessible. So I would say um, there is, is number one, I encourage all families who are trying to assimilate to each other, um, I would encourage them to, first of all, pray. Pray with your family because that is the glue that just sticks families together. Um, It is definitely the one thing that has helped us and our family. We didn't do it perfect. It's not like we just have this successful adoption story. We did lots of oopses, Mm -hmm. but... Um, relying on God in those tough, tough times. I really did put my parents through a lot, even as a 20-something-year-old. However, my parents prayed, and I watched them pray. They didn't do it for show. They didn't do it just because it was the right thing to do in front of the kids. They lived it every day. They cried out to the Lord in their bedrooms when they thought nobody was hearing them. And um, I think it's important, first of all, to have that relationship and stability with the Lord and I encourage people to definitely seek God in everything that you do Mm. and of course seek other families who have gone before you who are in the same but have a little more experience so um, find somebody that you could go under that could be like your mentor somebody that could pray with you that can understand you somebody that gets it and for the children who have been adopted or are in the process of being adopted right now, I just would encourage you to, first of all, realize that your family love you. Yes, they sacrificed a lot for you and you should be thankful, but they love you because God called them to you. And I encourage you to drop all your boundaries and start to trust them. Yeah, it sounds like it's just a lot of patience on all sides, which which is part of parenting no matter what, but particularly yes. in these situations, I think it would be an extra dose of, of patience and, and as the scripture says, long-suffering um, in these situations. Most definitely. Yeah. And do you have any resources? You mentioned some resources, uh, or you mentioned there are resources now. Do you have any that you recommend um, for these issues? Uh, well, I know that... Um, you know, um, the word of God is my main resource. So I always turn to that. I know that, um, Dennis Rainey and family life today, they have a lot of great resources and, um, just for blended families and all kinds of families Mm and, um, specifically for, um, how dealing, how to deal with children who are difficult or, um, you know, children who are, um, older and um, adoptions. So I think that is a very good resource as well. Okay. 
Well, today um, you have uh, had a whole, there's a whole lot more to the story uh, that you can get from from online. I'll, we'll post some of your other interviews that you've done. But today you're you're now an ambassador um, of Father's House, and what what are you doing in that role? Uh, you know, obviously you're you're talking about it a lot, like on interviews like this. But it, it, what what are you doing? Are you visiting churches? Are you going just telling people about it? How are you advocating for Father's House today? Well, today I'm an ambassador, and that means I represent the child as a whole, Um, a child who is in need of a loving family. I represent that child who got their prayers answered but now struggles to receive and give love. Mm. Um, Yes, I do travel, and I do speak in churches, and many times I get called to people's homes and spend time with their families who are in the midst of this right now. And. Um, have a teenager who is struggling and um, needs somebody to relate to. Um, Sometimes I speak also with my mother, uh, with my birth mom, not birth mom, but I'm sorry, with my adopted mom, because her and I um, just do a great job teaming up because you get the perspective of both the child and the adoptive parent. And so... um, What I do is I represent Father's house and I represent our Heavenly Father and I represent the orphan, um, the orphan's heart and the fatherless and what are our needs and how we should be loved and what is the biggest way that speaks love and encouragement to us. Um, So I... um, I'm honored to do all this and the Lord has opened a lot of opportunities and doors Um, for me to share my story. And I just hope that it is an encouragement to other families. Yeah. Yeah. And I I know that your story has encouraged a lot of people just uh, in in what you've done over the last few years. And and that being said, you, in one way that it's going to be even shown more is through a film project um, that's going to be coming out pretty soon. And it's uh, the Scars of an Orphan film project. I say coming out. It's hopefully going to be being made soon. And um, through a project, uh, Indiegogo uh, campaign. Um, and this is this is a movie that is going to share your story. And yes. you, it's, it's obviously your experiences uh, are painful to recount, I imagine, in a, in a movie form would be, would be difficult in some ways, but you've also said that you're very excited about the film project because hard truths are, hard truths are going to be told through your stories that others, you know, need to hear and will learn from. But what ultimately, uh, you know, when, when you were approached by, with this project, what made you want to share your experiences and, and, uh, what, how do you hope that your story will impact others around the world? Well, what encourages me the most is knowing that um, this opportunity to tell my story is really an opportunity to tell God's story because my life has been saved and the scars that I wear and carry now, they are only a testament to what God has done. And so I am really excited about this film project because Scars of an Orphan has the opportunity to give hope to children and families worldwide. Yes, there's going to be some hard truths that are told um, because they have to be told. Unfortunately, there's a lot of kids right now as we speak suffering worldwide, all kinds of abuse, much worse than what you might have heard 
me say today. Mm-hmm. And what gives me hope and encouragement is that one day this film project will bring so much awareness to orphan orphans worldwide. And I'm hoping that we can create a world without orphans. I want to see kids and families, whether they are adopted or whether they're stabilized into their original family environment. I want to see kids not suffer anymore. Yeah. And and now, uh, tell me a little bit too. I'm just curious for for people to hear out there how, uh, the project came to be. Well, the project came to be was when I was speaking with Dennis Rainey at CAFO conference in Orlando in May, actually. Mm -hmm. And right after my, um, interview, I was walking and, I ran into Conrad and it was really funny because um, Conrad approached me and he said, hey, I'm actually a documentary writer, but I have this crazy idea. And so we ended up exchanging contact information and um, and now we are working on this film project. Now, um, Conrad is a another one of those people, an ordinary person minding their own business. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so, and he uh, was telling me that he was just going to um, a workshop that we had, you know, after that interview and conference we had, everyone had to choose a workshop and we were all doing um, just that. And so after that interview, he said he felt the Lord lead him to turn around skip the workshop and come find me. Hmm. And it was just so funny because he obeyed. Hmm. And that's just a, a practical example of how God uses ordinary people. And um, what might seem like a crazy idea to us is just what the Lord needs us to do, is just be that obedient. And so I am so excited that I met Conrad and now God has put an amazing team around me. and. Um, Conrad and Brittany and Jim and everybody. Um, Guillermo is our screenplay writer. And I'm just so excited because I trust the team around me. And I want this film to be um, a glory to God. And I want it to bring awareness to orphans worldwide. And I want something done about it instead of people just looking and seeing a story and feeling sorry or bad for somebody. Mm. I want hearts to be changed. So I hope that um, people subscribe, people are able to go on scarsofanorphan.com and contribute. Um, There's lots of different perks because there's lots of different levels of giving. And so as tomorrow is Giving Tuesday, I hope that people are moved and hearts are touched by what they hear today. Yeah, and, and this, uh, I think when this airs, it'll be, I believe, next week. So tomorrow is Giving Tuesday as we're recording this. Um, and there will be a few days left of this Indiegogo campaign. And as you said, it's, you can go to scarsofanorphan.com. And we'll have all the links on the show notes for this, uh, for this podcast. But um, I'm excited for this project. Uh, again, it's, it's your story. Um, but it's gonna, it's, it's, as you said, it's so many other stories as well that, uh, we need to get that word out there. We need to help people understand how they can help and how they can get involved in, in loving the orphan and vulnerable around the world, what that might look like. Um, and, uh, 
one little way they can be a part of that, as you said, is through this campaign. And so everyone out there, I encourage you to, to definitely go to scarsofnorfin.com. There's some trailers there. There's Conrad, as you said, he's, uh, he tells the story of, of, from his point of view, how this project came to be and why God put it on his heart to, to be a part of it. And, um, also there's ways that you can get you know, there's all kinds of issues, as, as you said, Deanna, there's, there's, there's different giving levels that each of you out there can, can, can give to, and there's different perks. Um, but I know that's not why you're going to be doing it out there. It's just really to be a part of this thing. That's going to be a lot bigger than just a little movie. Um, so is there anything else you want to share about the, the film project itself? Um, before we move on to the next, uh, couple questions. Um, I just hope that this film project, um, I hope that we're able to raise the needed amount of $25,000 before the end. And I thank everybody that has contributed already and that plans to contribute. Okay, well, Deanna, as, as we're drawn to a close on this interview, there's there's a couple questions we ask all of our guests, and, and I, I, I'm so thankful for your time today. It's been, it is a story that um, has, God just has done so much through already, and I can't wait to see what he continues to do uh, through the movie and just through your life. Um, but the last couple questions we have, uh, what, what have you read, uh, listened to, or watched that has most impacted your thinking on the issues surrounding orphan care? Um, well, one thing that I have read is the Word of God. And I have um, a particular scripture that has touched my heart. And it be- it touched my heart because it touched me personally. And um, in John 14, 18, it says, I will not leave you orphans. And that's just the promise that God has. Mm. He yeah. has not left me orphan, and that is just the promise. And so um, I just want to be um, honoring through this whole experience and through this whole project. Um, and I don't want any orphans in the world. That is my heart. Yeah, that's great. Great promise and great, great words to remember for all of us, the spiritual orphans as well. Um, God does not leave us or forsake us. And we know that. So the last question, and I think I may know the answer to this as you've talked about throughout the day. Um, but, uh, what one person has most impacted your thinking on the issues surrounding orphan care? Um, well, uh, Roman Kuniko, he has impacted and has changed my way of thinking about orphans, um, because he is the reason why I'm here. If he did not answer his call on his life, then I would not be here and so many of the other kids. He had um, his own um, practice as a gynecologist in Ukraine, and he had his own family. And once again, he was another ordinary person minding his own business when God called him to do this. And I'm so glad he did, and I'm glad that Roman answered. And there's many, many other people who Mm. have um, impacted my life. Yeah, and hopefully uh, someday we can talk about all of those folks and and continue the conversation. Uh, thank, but I know uh, for today we we definitely gotta uh, finish up now. But thanks again for uh, for 
all that you're doing for your Thank life, you. for uh, continuing to uh, pursue what God has for you. So, um, Thank you, Phil. Yep. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, I, for one, am very excited for that movie to come out. And I, I'm assuming that you out there, after hearing Deanna's story, are thinking the same thing. It's, it's going to be something that will inspire as this interview has done. And hopefully will encourage us to really um, seek to understand and seek to, to get to know these children who really, who really need um, people in their lives to love them well after they've been abused and really left left for um, left out in the cold. I mean, literally and figuratively. And so, you know, Kelly, what do you what do you think of that interview? Well, I think she was right on with just the importance of assimilating a child into a new family and just uh, taking the time um, and putting in a lot of effort to make sure that that's done in a in a healthy way. Um, there is just so much grief and loss that um, kids who have been adopted or who are, are fostering, if you're fostering a child, um, have experienced. And so um, just giving space for that to play out and, and being really intentional on in how you're connecting uh, with with that child, I think is 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 important. I think that's something we've talked about a lot on this show, and just will continue to to address. It's just that uh, we often, I know, as an adoptive mom, I've often looked at it from my point of view, and haven't always stopped and considered it from um, our adopted son's point of view and what he's experienced. And so, I think just like she said, prayer, um, surrounding yourself with a good community that's going to uh, be with you in those hard times, but also that's going to support and love you, um, and and encourage you to. Um, continue to to do the things that it takes to, to make sure that a child is is growing and that it's healthy and that it's thriving I think are, are, are just key things so what about you Phil yeah I thought it was it was just a, so much there that you know I just realized more and more as I do this work as I do this show talking with these people that that I need to learn so much because I don't know I don't understand um, and I can't understand firsthand, but I can hopefully um, seek to understand other people, um, the children, the adoptees, the adoptive families, you know, everybody out there who is doing this, this, um, this work um, and has been doing it longer than I have and to, to be able to learn from these different people. And I think to hear her talk about these issues, you know, from the adoptee perspective, but also from a child who was abused, from a child who had a mom and knew her mom, um, and from a child who actually understood and understands the brokenness of, of a fatherlessness, but then is be able to come into a family. And, and then to hear her talk about forgiveness, because that's something that we all know you know, the need to forgive. It's something that we all have felt, I assume, anybody who has forgiven someone and to feel, as she said, it's like you're, you get this weight taken off of you. It's a freedom that comes when you are able to forgive someone who hurt you deeply, but you're able to truly say, you know, I forgive you. And and that's something that that was really poignant to me, um, just her whole story that I was, I was just, as I was listening to her to try to understand it and then realize I never will be able to fully understand it, but that I can and hopefully enter in at least a little bit with her into that to say, okay, I want to understand this so that I can help you and I can help others who may be in that, in that same situation. So it was something that, that I know again, that this, this movie that they're making, um, which I do encourage you folks out there to go to the website and, and help make this thing happen. 
Um, whether it's through donation, whether it's telling other people about it, whether it's sharing about it on social media, um, to get this campaign funded so that this movie can be made and her life can impact others. Um, so yeah, so I would say, you know, this interview as, as much as any has really, um, kind of impacted me in a way that, that makes me, um, just see more and more just the hurt, the deep hurts that are there um, in a lot of these children who who are left, who are, you know, driven out of their homes really um, by abuse and by um, issues in those homes. So, yeah, I mean, is, are there is there anything else you have or maybe resources that you have, Kelly, that you've used or that have impacted you? Um, whether it's the, the assimilation side of things or as far as, we, you know, in, in your adoption and the post-adoption to be able to help with that assimilation? I think the key thing is to stay connected to your social worker um, or to stay connected with um with people who are, who are walking it with you. Um, there, there's a reason that a social worker is involved. And so I know from that point, often I would ask the question to families of, man, how's it going? And you just kind of get this blank stare or you would get, oh, it's great. And so having to really be open and honest with what you're feeling and what you're experiencing and realizing that there's no shame in saying, this is hard, we need help. Um, we want to do everything we can to um, connect with this child and do it in a way that uh, brings about healing. And so obviously the connected child is a great resource, but I think even deeper than that, I think it's it's knowing when to say we need additional help. Mm. I think it's knowing when to say it's time to bring in a counselor. It's time to... Um, kind of let the guard down and and recognize that maybe there's some things that are beyond your capacity um, as a parent or as as a mentor or a foster parent um, and, and to be able to kind of step into that and and just do it with with confidence knowing that um, this isn't easy work and like you said it's it's really about um, looking at it from the child's point of view and not as maybe what you're not doing right but looking at it from the perspective of what does this child need need uh, for their own healing. Um, and then obviously a lot of prayer. I mean, that, I don't want to negate that as well, but I think it's, it's kind of taking those, those next steps to, is there, um, is there psychological interventions that need to happen? Are there educational interventions that need to happen? Um, are there even developmental kind of interventions that need to happen to help a child thrive? So I think being willing to get outside help, um, is huge in helping a child assimilate into your family. Mm. Yeah, that's good stuff. That's good stuff. And I know that next week we're going to have Tara Vanderwood on the show um, as well. And, and she talks a lot about these same issues. And, and, and so I encourage you to check that out next week as well. Um, well, today we, we now have the uh, Thoughts from the Field segment. And as I said earlier, this is uh, Brandon Stiver. And he's with Kingdom Families in Tanzania. And he has... Um, answered the question that we've been asking a lot of people, which is what is one of the biggest issues you uh, see the orphan care crisis facing today and, uh, or the orphan care movement facing today and how can we address it? So here he goes. I find that one of the largest issues uh, in orphan care currently in churches is that um, it's largely seen as kind of like this separate stream. Um, And it's kind of one of those streams that, if somebody within the church wants to partake in that stream, 
that's great. But if not, that's also okay. And uh, maybe this is just kind of how it is with um, different acts of the Christian life in general. People kind of pick and choose. But I really believe that the Bible and, and certainly Jesus kind of invites us into the whole thing. So with orphan care in particular, I feel like um, we need to do a lot to get it uh, within the mainstream of our churches. And I feel like a lot of progress has been made in this already. Um, But it's something that really is for all Christians to participate in. Um, And this doesn't have to just be adoption. Sometimes people see that as, you know, the pinnacle uh, of of the orphan care movement. And certainly that's such an integral piece. And we do need more adoption. But if you only equate adoption with orphan care, then and you're going to kind of miss a lot of other things. And if we can present this to each of our churches, every single church, in a way that helps them to understand they have a role to play, whoever they are, and whatever they do, they have a role. Um, there's a lot of ways for people to participate in caring for orphans. And um, it becomes a life-giving activity when done in a healthy Christian community. So it's something for the whole church to partake in, every church to partake in, to have some kind of role within orphan care. And I feel like if we could get that squared away, um, I feel like together we'll have an immeasurably more impactful um, experience uh, caring for the least of these and, and within that seeing the gospel go out. Well, thank you, Brandon, for uh, those wise words. And uh, I just am excited right now to be able to give the Phil and Kelly recommends book recommendation today. And so this is actually a book by Gary Haugen. It's The Locus Effect. And it's a book that really gets into the um, factor of violence in poverty and how it impacts so many different things, whether it's trafficking and a lot of what International Justice Mission, which is what Gary Haugen works uh, works with, um, they're, they're fighting against trafficking and violence is a big cause of trafficking. Um, it's also a cause of the orphan crisis, a cause of poverty. And the book goes into how that is the case, how that is a truth, and also how we can fight against this violence that is plaguing our world today. And so I strongly recommend this book. Um, It is definitely one that uh, will challenge you to think. It will challenge you to act. And it's something that he also did a TED Talk on, and so I encourage you to check out that TED Talk as well. Um, But those are, that is uh, the recommendation for today. And that also is what's gonna finish out this show today. And so I, again, hope that you were encouraged by what you heard today. I hope that you were inspired to continually be thinking more and more about how you can love orphaned and vulnerable children better and better every day. Have a great week. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan. Think Orphan.